Thanks, Pastor Seth. Good to see you, man. And uh, good morning to you guys. Thanks for being here, and especially if you're a first-time guest. Like Seth said, we're so glad you're able to join us this morning, and we hope you guys get a chance um, to grab that gift at the Welcome Center uh, after we're done with our time here. Let me just uh, take a minute to re-emphasize uh, something that Seth has already mentioned, but I just want to talk again about next week, next Sunday afternoon, we're going to be doing intro. You guys saw that in your programs, and Seth mentioned that. Um, intro is essentially an environment that we've created that it's designed for everyone in our church to take the, the next step. And so if you're a person who uh, is interested in getting connected to the Medina East Campus, maybe you've been coming for a little while, and you're like, man, I would love to serve, I'd love to get involved, what's my next step? Your next step is an intro, all right? If you're a person that's like, I've been coming for a while and I wanna be a member here at Grace Church, what's your next step? Your next step is an intro. If it's your first time or you've only been here for a few weeks and you're like, I don't know what this church is all about, I'd like to learn what the background is, I'd like to learn about the history and the heart of this of this church and, uh, and what are you guys doing and where are you guys going, um, come to intro. So your next step is uh, is what, tell me. It's intro, right? So if you uh, have not connected to intro, next week is intro. And, uh, and so you can, like Seth said, grab those connection cards. Check the box there that says you're interested in intro. We'll sign you up. We'll watch the kids. We'll buy you some, we'll get you some food. And, uh, and we'll get a chance to talk together next week at intro. Hope to see you there. All right. Uh, today what we are doing, though, is we're actually coming close to the end of a series. Next week we're going to be finishing a series we started a while ago called Jesus in His Own Words. And uh, if you're just joining us for this series, basically uh, what we've been talking about in this series is we, we, we really said that what we're addressing is a tension that exists in our culture, sort of a unique tension as it relates to the person of Jesus Christ. And so we said uh, in our culture today, 21st century America, um, there, is, uh, there are two truths that happen about Jesus that create a tension. And one is this. We said we live in what I dubbed a Jesus-saturated culture. We live in a Jesus-saturated culture. And what I meant by that is that you would be hard-pressed to find someone today in our culture who has never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, the name of Jesus Christ uh, is a very influential name, it is a very controversial name, and it shows up in every major arena in our culture. And so in the, in the political world, the name of Jesus shows up often in pop culture, obviously in religion, the name Jesus shows up. We live in a Jesus-saturated culture. So we said on one hand, that's true. On the other hand, and this is where the tension lies, we said we also live in a Jesus-confused culture. Um, that we live in a culture that is confused around the issue of Jesus Christ. There are so many presentations, there are so many opinions about Jesus, that for the person that's investigating Jesus, trying to figure out who he really is, um, it can be very, very difficult to discern what is the truth about Jesus. So it's because of that tension that we said we wanted to do this series. And this series is, is sort of like an investigation, and what we're primarily concerned with is one question. And the question that we've been asking is this. We have not been asking, what does culture say about Jesus? Because obviously culture has a lot of different opinions. You're going to get mixed reviews. Nor are we asking, what does religion say about Jesus? Because depending on the religious persuasion, there's always a different presentation of Jesus. The question we've been asking in this series is, what does Jesus say about Jesus? What did he say about himself? What were his own claims? Or in other words, what's Jesus in his own words? And so that's what we've been doing in this series. Each week then, what we've been doing, we've been looking at a different claim that Jesus has made about himself. We've been unpacking that claim. And then at the end of our time, we've been asking the question, if this is true, if this is what Jesus said about himself, what does this say about him, right? And consequently, then, what are the implications for you and I? And so we've been hammering through some of that, talking through that in this conversation 
Jesus in his own words. So kind of keeping with that, what I want to do today is I want to look at yet another claim that Jesus made about himself. And to do that, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles with me. We're going to go to John 13 this morning. John chapter 13 uh, is where we're going to be looking to find this next claim uh, that Jesus made about himself. And by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's totally fine. We actually have some available for you. They, they should be at arm's uh, reach there in the chairs in front of you. John chapter 13 is found on page 751 in those Bibles that we have provided for you. And uh, let me just also say that if you're a guest with us this morning, if you don't own a Bible, like if you just flat out don't own one, or you don't have a newer translation of the Bible, uh, would you just do me a favor? Would you just take one of ours, make it a gift from us to you, write your name in it, and that'll be good. Okay, so happy um, Uno de Juno. I don't know how to say June 1st in Spanish, so that's my guess. I'm not sure if that's close. So. There you go, all right? You can even write that in your Bible. Uno did you know? It'd be awesome. So, uh, page 751 there. Now, as you guys are flipping to uh, John chapter 13, let me give you a little context uh, before we jump in here so you understand what we're about to look at. Um, the conversation that we're about to watch Jesus have with his disciples um, happens uh, during what, what commentators call the farewell discourse. So, uh, here's what's going on. Jesus has been doing his ministry for a few years. He's taken his disciples with him, right? And now they've been spending every waking moment together. They've probably, the disciples have learned a ton. They've followed Jesus. Their lives have been transformed. And now in John chapter 13, Jesus knows that in his immediate future, he's going to be facing the cross. And so he looks to his disciples. And from John 13 on, we see this little passage called the farewell discourse. And it's Jesus' parting words to his disciples. So I just want you to think for a minute before we jump into this passage. Just imagine the emotion of this conversation, right? Uh, the Bible is going to tell us, we're going to see here in a second, that the disciples were deeply troubled, that their hearts were deeply troubled. In other words, they were sad, right? These guys were depressed. So think about it, right? They, these guys had been, they'd been with Jesus for the past three years. They spent every waking moment together. They essentially were like a family. Uh, they just had their minds blown. They were, their lives were transformed. Most likely, these past few years have been the best times of their life. And now Jesus, their leader, is standing there telling them, I'm going to leave now. I'm going to go away. So, and the Bible says that their hearts were deeply troubled. They were saddened, right? And so I just want you to th think about that emotion for a second, because I think all of us can relate with that, right? So just think about it for a minute. When's a time in your life that you felt that way? A time when you had to say goodbye to either something you loved or someone you loved? Uh, think about a time when you had to put a season behind you that you were sad to put behind you. So for maybe for some of you today, it's graduation season, right? Some of you maybe are graduating high school or graduating college, and maybe you feel that way, right? You're saying goodbye to a season of life, and it, and it causes you to be sad, maybe a little depressed. For some of you, you're like, not me, man. I am like so thrilled to be out of school. And some of you are like that. I was like that. So, but, but for some of you, maybe you're just like, I'm going to miss it, man. And, and I'm going to listen to songs and go through my you know, the memories and all kinds of stuff. And that's what the disciples are doing. They're, they're, they're deeply sad. Or maybe for you, um, this year, you, you're the parent of the graduate. And maybe you're approaching or you're coming close to being an empty nester. And, uh, and, you know, that's a season that's, of course, you're excited, but you're also sad because you're saying goodbye to a particular season of life. Or, or maybe you had to say goodbye to someone you love at some point in time. Or maybe you broke up with someone. and you experienced. I just want you to think about that emotion, the emotion of being deeply troubled, saddened in heart. For me, it's when I run out of bacon. That's how I usually feel. I'm deeply troubled, sorrowed, brokenhearted, inconsolable. And uh, so anyway, I just want you to capture that emotion, and that's sort of the emotion of this passage, this deeply intimate, 
The disciples are talking with Jesus. They're not excited about the fact that Jesus is going to leave. So we're going to start in chapter 13, verse 33. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from verse 33 all the way to, to chapter 14, verse 7. I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to cycle back, and we're going to make some observations. So John 13, starting in verse 33. Jesus says, my children. Just, just stop for a minute. Just imagine how intimate this is. Jesus is speaking with his disciples. He's like family now. And Jesus says, my children. Just speaks in such intimate terms with them. He says, I will be with you only a little longer, and you will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back, and I will take you to be with me, and you will also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, and by the way, this is the claim that we want to dig into today. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So here's this really great passage, Jesus with his disciples. It's kind of a sad moment, saying goodbye to them. The Bible says that they're deeply troubled in heart. And it's in the midst of this conversation that Jesus makes one of the most profound statements about himself that he's ever made. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now my guess is, if you're a person that grew up in the church, or even if you're a person that maybe grew up going to Sunday school, this is a verse you're, you are incredibly familiar with. This is probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's definitely one of the most memorized verses in the Bible. My guess is many of you have this committed to memory, and it should be, because the reason that this is such a popular verse and the reason this is such a memorized verse is because this is one of the most profound statements that Jesus Christ has ever made about himself. As a matter of fact, commentators oftentimes will call this statement the culminating point of all of the theological implications of John. So in other words, what, com what commentators would say is that this is the main point that the Gospel of John is trying to make about Jesus. That what Jesus says about himself here is the full culmination of everything that the Gospel of John is trying to say. All wrapped up in this one little claim that Jesus makes. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And, you know, this is one, like I said, it's familiar, but because it's familiar, sometimes we can, we, can, we can forget about or we can lose out on how unbelievably profound a statement like this is. This is one of the most profound things that Jesus has ever said. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to talk about three ways, three ways that this statement is unbelievably profound. I just want to unpack it a little bit. Three ways. There's way more than three ways that this is a profound statement. But I want to talk about three ways that this, this, uh, that this statement is unbelievably profound. And here they are. I'm going to give them to you right in the front, and then we're going to walk through them. But number one, what I want to show you is that what Jesus says is profoundly exclusive. Profoundly exclusive. Secondly, I want to talk about how it's profoundly complete. What Jesus says here is profoundly complete. 
And then lastly, I want to talk about how Jesus, what he says here, is profoundly absurd. Okay, so those three things today, profoundly exclusive, profoundly complete, and profoundly absurd. All right, so let's just start at the top. What Jesus says here about himself is profoundly exclusive. This is a profound declaration of exclusivity on the part of Jesus. Take a look again at verse 1 in chapter 14. Jesus says to his disciples, they're troubled. Remember, they're sad, they're depressed. Jesus says, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. He says, he says perk up a little bit because you have hope. And what's that hope? Well, he says, you, you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. And then Jesus says in verse 4, and you guys know the place where I'm going. You know the way to get there. You guys know how to get there. So what's Jesus talking about in this passage? Some of you are like, what is all this talk about my father's house and many rooms? What is that referring to? Well, put simply, what Jesus is talking about there is he's talking about heaven, right? He says, he's saying, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to go somewhere you guys can't go right now. Basically, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back to this eternal existence. And then he says something awesome. He says, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to, I'm going to secure a residency for you in heaven, in an eternal dwelling. What's this talking about? It's talking about heaven. Heaven is um, one of, the, one of the, the primary beliefs of Christianity, that this life is not all there is, that this temporary uh, empirical life is not all there is, that there's more beyond this, that there is an eternal quality of life that is available to every, every single one of us, each and every single one of us. And that is a core doctrine of Christianity, that there is a heaven. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I'm going to go to heaven now. Okay? And I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to secure for you a residency in eternity, is what he says. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, and you guys know the way there, right? You guys know how to get there. And look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't even know where you're going, so how can we get there? How are we supposed to know the way? Right? And of course, once again, the disciples, they kind of miss it. Jesus is like, I'm going to go with my father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's going to be awesome. And I'm going to come back later, and I'm going to get you. And you guys know the way. You know the way. And Thomas is like, we don't understand what you're talking about. We don't even know where you're going. So how are we supposed to know the way? And it's in that conversation that Jesus makes this profound statement. He says to Thomas, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to notice in that statement just the words that Jesus uses and how unbelievably profoundly exclusive they are. Look what he says. Jesus, uh, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus answered. First off, he says, I am. I am. Not they, not you, not I know the way, the truth, and the life. That's not what he says. Jesus says, I, radically exclusive. I am the, singular. I am the way, the truth, the life. And then he says this, and he says, and no one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Radical exclusivity. I don't know how you can be more clear than that. Jesus basically looks at his disciples and he says, the way for you to connect with God, the means by which you can share in the eternal dwelling place of heaven is exclusively through me. No one goes to the Father except through me. I am the way. I am the truth. 
and I am the life. And it's radically exclusive what Jesus is saying here. And I know that in our culture today, that this statement really creates a tension. Because you guys know this as well as I do. We live in a culture today that basically propagates this. It teaches you that whatever is good for you is good for you, right? And whatever is good for me is good for me. And every way is just as viable as the other. And the only thing that you cannot do is say that your truth is the exclusive truth. That's like the capital sin in our culture, is to say, my way is the right way. You can say, my way is good for me. You can say that. But you can't propagate that on other people. That's like the big you know, party foul of our culture, is to do that. It reminds me, I was reading this um, article probably a couple years ago, and the article was entitled uh, this. It was called, What is the Path to God? 10 Universal Paths to Find God. And this was basically an article that said, how does a person connect with God? What is the pathway to God? And I just want to read five of those 10 ways that they mentioned, just to kind of show you that some of the way that our culture thinks about this. So this, uh, it said this, first and foremost, uh, the first thing they said, how do you connect with God? They said, one way to do it is practice meditation. Practice meditation. This is what the article said. I'll quote it. It said, when a devotee quiets the mind, the inner voice can be more easily heard and heeded. Meditation allows for the cultivation of the state of mind needed to achieve enlightenment. So basically, what this, uh, what this author was saying was, one of the ways that you connect with God is you look deeply inside of yourself. And if you look deeply inside of yourself and you quiet all of the voices around you and you meditate, you'll be in tune with whatever it is inside of you, and that will point you to God. Right? That's one way this article says that you can connect with God. The second way they say is to practice yoga. Right? Practice yoga. And here's what they said. The ancient discipline is a subtle yet powerful pathway to God. Yoga is a discipline that reconnects the mind, the body, and the spirit with God. So in this article they said if you want to connect with God, if you want the path to God, contort your body in weird positions. Get a yoga mat, put on some yoga pants. If you're a dude, don't. And, uh, and do that. Right? That's the way you're going to connect with God. They also said this, they said, read inspirational spiritual writings. Just, just read spiritual motivational writings that inspire you, that inspire your spirit to a higher sense of thinking. Right? That's the way you'll connect with God. They also said, practice positive thinking. Don't think about negative stuff. Quit it with all the gloom and doom and sin and all that stuff. Just focus on the good things, and that's the way that you'll connect with God. And lastly, one of the things they said is they said practice good ethics. Basically, uh, keep the rules. Live a good life. And if you live a good life, you'll gain favor with God. And then if you gain favor with God, you'll connect with God. Now, this article, there's, what, it, what it also said was it said that not one way is any better than the other, that they're all viable pathways, that they all lead to God. Now, here's the problem with this article. The problem is that it is absolutely contradictory to what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one connects with the Father except through me. There is no other way that you can connect with God. There is no other way that you can secure for yourself an eternal inheritance in heaven except through the relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. It is radically, radically exclusive. And for some of you, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, my guess is you might be thinking, you see that right there, that's the problem I have with Christians. That's it. See, see I, I have a problem because Christians are so arrogant. They say that their truth is the truth, and everyone else's truth isn't nearly as good as their truth, and so they go around propagating that they know the way. How arrogant, how narrow-minded could a person be? And for some of you, that's the, the exact problem you have with Christianity. 
You think Christians are narrow-minded and arrogant because they claim to have the truth. And listen, I understand that. I can understand how arrogant it seems to say we know the way to heaven and everyone else is wrong, right? But, but I want you to think about it this way for a minute. All right, I want you just to, let's do a little thought experiment. I want you to imagine with me that you fall down a well, all right? And just for illustration's sake, let's just say it's an impossibly deep well, hundreds of feet, okay? So you fall down this well, and somehow, miraculously, it's a thought experiment, so we can do this, you survive, okay? And you break every bone in your body. Every bone in your body is broken, your arms, your legs, everything. You, you literally cannot move. And you're laying at the bottom of this well, all right? There's no way out, you can't get out on your own. And I want you to imagine, here you are in this terrible situation, I want you to imagine someone comes to the top of the well and they yell down to you. And they say, hey, I know the way out. And you say, awesome, because I want out, right? And they say, okay, here it is, you ready? Yeah, work your way out. Just climb yourself on out of there, right? Just, you just behave yourself on out, right? That's not gonna help you any bit, because, right, because all of your arms and legs are broken. You're in an impossible situation. The only thing that's gonna do is hurt you more and make you tired, something that's gonna do. Or imagine someone else comes up to the well and say, hey, I know the way out. You're like, that's awesome, because I want out. And they say, okay, here's the way out. You ready? You're like, yeah. Like, practice positive thinking, okay? And you're like, what? They're like, yeah. Like, now, look, I know your arms and your legs are broken and you can't move and you're doomed to die, but look at the bright side. At least you're not on fire. You know? At least you're not in a Nickelback concert. It could be worse. Now that, yeah, amen. Now, that might help you. That might help you for five minutes. But that's about it. Right? That's about it. Or imagine someone comes to the top of the well and they say, hey, I know the way out. And you're like, what is it? And they're like, yoga. <laughs> Just take your broken legs and somehow put them behind your head. That's going to get you out. Right? That just sounds ridiculous. And, and, and listen, the reason that's absurd, we all know it's absurd. The reason I use that illustration is because the Bible tells us, it tells us that our circumstance that we're in is not much different than the well scenario. The Bible explains this way. It says that you and I, we are dead in our transgressions and sins, is what the Bible says. It says because of our sin, because of our disobedience to God and our imperfection, that there is an impossible chasm between us and God. There's a severed relationship, and that we are in a situation that we can do nothing on our own to save ourselves. So here's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that it's not advice that we need. It's not counseling that we need. It's not therapy that we need. It's not that those things are wrong. It's just not what we need. The Bible says what we need is we need a savior. We need someone to rescue us because we're in a terrible situation. So I want you to imagine, go back to that thought experiment. I want you to imagine that Jesus Christ himself repels down in the well. He comes down to get you, right? And he reaches his hand out to you. And he says, I am your only hope. I am the rescue plan. And if you, if, if you allow me to embrace you, you will be saved. Right? I am here to save you. I am the I love you. I am sent from above to come down and rescue you. And, and, and he looks at me and he says, and I am your only hope. I am the only way you're going to get out of here. And what are you going to say to Jesus? Are you going to look at him and say, how arrogant of you. How dare you say you're the only way? How narrow-minded can you be? See, see, here's what you need to understand. The Bible teaches us 
that, that, this, that this relationship with God has been so severely disjointed. There's nothing we can do. But God sent Jesus on a rescue mission. And Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus has come to be the rescuer uh, in our situation. It is God's provision for us to be saved. And so the Bible teaches us that Jesus came to save us. We don't need advice. We don't need someone to give us counseling. We don't need therapy. We need a savior. And that's why Jesus says with radical exclusivity, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, it's radically exclusive. But you know what I found in my life? I found that things that are true and things that are real tend to be radically exclusive. Did you guys find that too? The laws of gravity tend to be pretty exclusive, pretty radical. Right? I don't get offended when, when I'm like, gravity, what are you talking about? Why can't I fly? I don't get offended by that because it's just the way that reality is. And in the same way, I believe that this is true. What, what Jesus is saying is reality. And it's not a statement of arrogance. It's a statement of fact. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one connects to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know God. If you don't know me, you don't know God. It's through me, is what he tells Thomas. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm the way you connect with God the Father. It's a radically exclusive statement. So first and foremost, radically exclusive, radically exclusive. But I also want you to see, not only is it radically exclusive, but similarly, it's radically complete. This statement that Jesus makes about himself is radically complete. You know, one of the things that's boggled my mind about this passage for a long time is, um, is the context in which Jesus makes this radical statement. Jesus makes this statement about himself directly in light of his disciples' failure, right? I want you to take a look back, go back to verse 36 in chapter 13. So Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to go away now. And then in, chapter, in verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? I love Simon Peter, by the way. He's just awesome. This guy is like captain overzealous. He's always saying the wrong things at the wrong times. Every once in a while he gets it right, but he's just overzealous. He's always making these giant sweeping statements that are just way impossible. And I love this guy because I so identify with him. And so Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, Peter, you can't follow. It's like, Peter, you can't come right now, buddy. Got to stay home, right? Got to stay home, little buddy. He says, but he's like, but you can follow later. He's like, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll, I'll, get, I'll come back for you later. Watch Peter. I love Peter's response in verse 37. He says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I just totally hear my four-year-old in that. I want to go now. Now. And then he, said, he says, why can't I go now? And he says, I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus, I'll die for you. You know, just the, 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 the overzealous nature of Peter. He's like, I'll go to any length to be with you. Jesus' response, so realistic. Will you really lay down your life for me? It's like, very truly, Peter, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. He's like, it's not even going to be 24 hours, Peter, before you're disowning me three times. I think if, if, uh, if I could summarize Jesus' response in a meme, it would be this one. It would look like this. Right? He's like, Peter's like, I'll die for you. And Jesus is like, ah, really? <laughs> really? No. He's like, I'm telling you, man, three, three times. You're going to disown me three times in less than 24 hours, Peter. But here's the crazy thing. This is what I love about this passage. I love it because um, Jesus is fully cognizant of the fact that his disciples are going to utterly fail him. He knows that. He knows that within 24 hours, he's going to go to the cross. Peter's going to deny him three times. The rest of the disciples are going to abandon him. 
He's fully aware of that, but yet he still looks at them and he says to them, I'm preparing a place for you guys. I know your failures. I know your screw-ups. I'm preparing a place for you. You know the way because I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. I love that because here's what it does. What this passage does, that claim, is it helps us locate salvation, right? And it helps us understand that salvation is found squarely outside of ourselves. Salvation is found directly outside of ourselves and squarely in the person of Jesus Christ. See, see, it wasn't about Peter's performance. It wasn't about Peter doing everything right. It wasn't about the disciples and their good behavior and how well they worked. It wasn't about any of that. Jesus looked at them and he said, I know you guys are going to fail me. I know you guys are going to mess up. I'll see you again because you know me. Because I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I'm your way to the Father. Not your works, not your effort, not your behavior, not your attendance at church, not your life group involvement. Not, I am the source of salvation. Salvation is found directly outside of us. It is located squarely in the person of Jesus Christ. You guys, I think that's so important, and I'll tell you why I think that's important. I think it's actually more important for those of us who follow Jesus to understand that. And I'll tell you why. Um, as a follower of Jesus, I know that's not everyone in the room, but for those of you who follow Jesus, my guess is that maybe you can relate with me. I can only speak from my own experience. But I found something in my own uh, walk with Christ, in my own Christianity, that I found is both subtle and dangerous. And, and maybe you found this too. When I first came to know Jesus, I came to know Jesus when I was 17 years old. And when that happened, I'm just telling you, man, I was wrecked by God's grace. I was just wrecked. I was amazed by the grace of God. I remember thinking to myself, Man, how can this be? How can, how, can, how can it be that God has forgiven me, that he loves me after all the things I've done, after all the places that I've been? I was, I was wrecked by God's grace. I was amazed by God's grace. And I know that a lot of you, when you came to know Jesus, it was the same situation. I know people that when they, when, after they came to know Christ, they couldn't even listen to a song about God's grace without breaking into tears because it was just that amazing. And how, this, is t this is like a dream come true. How is it that this God would forgive me? And I remember feeling that way. I was wrecked by God's grace. But something real dangerous and something real subtle happened. And you know what it was? I started to get better. And I, and I mean that literally. I started to become a better person. I started to go to church more. I started to hang out with, uh, with a different friend base. I started to get better at reading the Bible and, and doing the things the Bible said, Right? I started to clean up my life, sanitize my life for a little bit, and something really subtle happened, and here's what happened, it's so dangerous. All of a sudden, I became less amazed by God's grace. I started to believe somewhere in my heart that I deserved it, that the things I did earned me favor with God, that I was sort of accomplishing my own salvation. And all of a sudden, this is so, so dangerous, all of a sudden, Christianity for me became more about my work for Jesus and his work for me. It became less about his grace that reached out and saved me, and it became about my effort and my accomplishment. For me, I became a manager of my own sin. That's what I did. You see, what happened, very, very dangerous, what happened was I took salvation back. It's located outside of it. Good news is located exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ. From start to finish, Jesus Christ is the whole package. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the whole thing. 
And, and there's nothing, look, if you're looking for good news, don't look inside of yourself. If you're looking for good news, you have to look outside of yourself. Look to the person of Jesus. He's the only one who can accomplish it for you. And this passage shows us that salvation is located only in the person of Jesus Christ. It's only in him. That it's not about our effort. It's not about our work for him. It's about his work for us, about what he's done for us. Jesus looks at Peter, overzealous Peter, who he knows is going to fail him three times, and he's able to look at him and say, your failure is not your ticket to your saving grace. It's me. It's your relationship with me. And Peter got a hold of this later. We see that in the scripture. But this statement Jesus makes, man, it is profoundly exclusive. It is profoundly complete. And the third thing, and I'll do this quick because we looked at this a couple weeks ago a little bit. We touched on it. It's profoundly absurd. It's just absurd. I think that, um, you know, all these statements we've been looking at about Jesus, if you look at them in isolation, it is crazy. I mean, if you just look at it, it is crazy the things that Jesus said about himself. If you actually stop and think about it, they're absolutely absurd. Look at this statement again. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you'll know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. And man, what's Jesus saying here? Well, in another way, as we've seen in the past weeks, Jesus is basically saying, I'm God. I'm God himself. He doesn't say, I know the way, I'll tell you the truth, I'll show you the life. That's not what he says. He says, I am those things. I am the fullness of it all. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God but through me. Look, I'm just saying, if anyone you knew, like if your brother said that, a statement like that, you would totally write him off as a cult leader. If someone else said something like that, that is so crazy and it's so absurd. You know, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is constantly saying these very, very controversial things. And I believe the reason he's doing that is because he's trying to push you and I to a, to a decision point about him, where either we crown him or we kill him. Right? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's pushing us to that place. Like one of the things that scares me a little bit, I think in our culture today, and I can see it even in our churches sometimes, what scares me sometimes is that many people think that Christianity is good. And I think that that scares me a little bit, and I'll tell you why. I was having a conversation with, with someone a while ago, and uh, they asked me what I did for a living, and I told them I was a pastor, which is always a very interesting conversation. So said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And they said, oh. And so then after they stopped cussing, um, they said, uh, they're like, well, I, th they said, I just really think what you're doing is really good. That's just a really, really good thing that you're doing. And I was like, oh, yeah? They're like, yeah, really good. They said, I think, like, you know, if, if people have kids and they're trying to raise their kids, I think it's so good for them to go to church. I think it's so good for them to get good morals and good ethics. It's just, it's very, very good. I was like, yeah. They're like, yeah. They're like, if, if someone's going through a hard time in life, and they kind of need a little emotional support, you know, or they need, they need something stronger than themselves to help them get through it. Like, I just think that's really, really good. Or someone's, if someone is going, has an addiction and they need a higher power to help pull them out of that addiction, if they need that, if that's good for them, you know, I think it's good. I think church is just so good. That's what they told me. It's really good. And I didn't know, I really didn't know how to respond to that because it just struck me strange. But I remember thinking, walking away, I remember thinking to myself, well, you know what? The question shouldn't be, is it good? That's not the right question. So the question ought to be this. Is it true? That's a way more important question. Because honestly, just think about it. The things that Jesus Christ said about himself, they are so radically exclusive. They're so radically absurd. 
they're so radically complete, right? That if, that if Christianity is not true, if it's not true, it should be of no significance at all to anybody. It should be on par with fairy tales, whatever. Should, be of no, should have no bearing on your life at all. But if it is true, if that's true, what Jesus said, then it should be of infinite importance. It should be the centerpiece of our lives because if that's true, if Jesus says your relationship with me determines your eternal existence, that's pretty important. The thing that it can't be, it's either if it's not true, it's of no importance. If it is true, it's of infinite importance. But the one thing it can't be, it cannot be, is of moderate importance. It can't be. It can't be a nominal, peripheral part of your life. Jesus will not even allow it for a moment. He's constantly pushing us to this question. And the question is, what's, what's it going to be? Do you believe me or do you not? Not, is it good? Don't ask, is it good? Ask, is it true? Don't ask, is it for me? Don't ask that question. That's the wrong question. Ask the question, is it true? Is that true? Is what Jesus Christ said about himself true? Because if it is, if it is, then that means it's of infinite importance. And if it's not, that means it should be of no importance at all. It means that everything we're doing right now is a joke. This is all fairy tale and myth. But if it's true, then what we're doing right now is of unbelievable significance and importance. Look, for some of you right now, you're investigating Jesus. And as you've been investigating Christ, maybe for you your whole life, you, you, Jesus has been sort of a nominal part of your life. He's just kind of an add-on. And you've been, maybe for you, maybe for some of you, you've been dabbling in Christianity. You just kind of dabble in it. You're like, yeah, you know, I, you know I, I guess I'm a Christian, but it really doesn't have any bearing on my decision-making. It doesn't really have any bearing on the way I do my family or the way I, I go through my job or school or anything like that. It's just sort of this nominal, peripheral part of my life. Listen, if that's the case, I would tell you, I don't, I don't think Jesus wants you to stay there. I think he's constantly pushing you to a place to say, if this is true, not if it's good, if it's true, it's either of no importance or it's of infinite importance. And with intellectual integrity, you have to make a decision about what that is. So this is a profound thing Jesus says, profound in many ways. It's profoundly, profoundly exclusive. It's profoundly complete. It's profoundly absurd. And we have to reckon with it. Between your heart and God's heart, you have to reckon with this. So in a moment, I'm going to ask the band to come up in just a second. But before they do, I thought I would just address two audiences, kind of give you a couple questions to deal with chew on. And then after we're done with that, the band's going to come up. They're going to play, and I'll pray, and then we'll be finished for the day. But, uh, but I just want to ask you a couple questions to a couple different audiences. Let me speak first to the person in the room who's investigating Jesus. So if you're a person today, maybe you came out, maybe someone dragged you out, a friend or a neighbor dragged you out. You're not sure what you think about the whole Jesus thing. You're coming just because you're interested or you're coming because you want to be a good friend to someone. If that's the case, so glad you're here. But if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, listen, I think maybe for you, one of the things that's keeping you from embracing Christ is you have a lot of questions. And maybe there's a lot of things that you're trying to rectify in your mind. So, so you're like, well, creation, evolution, how does all that work? And I don't know. And maybe you're asking questions about, I don't know, questions about evil, the problem of evil in the world. And you're asking all these questions. I think those are great questions. But I really feel like those aren't the most important questions. I think the first question you need to ask is, is really who is Jesus? Because if this is true about him, if this is really true about him, then all those other questions become secondary to the first question which is, if this is true, not if it's good, is it true? 
if it's true, then it demands your full attention, demands your full attention. And so maybe for you today, as we worship and we sing, we kind of get a chance to do that, would you just think and pray? Maybe even for the first time, pray to God and say, if this is true about you, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to me? If you're a person investigating Jesus, if you have further questions, what I would encourage you to do is jump in a life group. You guys saw the Andrews, they were advertised a moment ago, jump in with them. Uh, if that doesn't work out for you, we have plenty of other life groups. You can check them out at the Welcome Center. But don't leave this investigation go. Right? Don't, don't let it sit on the sidelines. Because if what Jesus said is true, then this is, this is something you've got to get figured out. Right? For some of you, maybe you've been kind of dabbling in Christianity for a while. Or maybe for you, you've, been, you've never really made a commitment to God. And you've kind of been on the fence about it for a long time. Right? You're just kind of like, well, you know, maybe one day I'll get to that. I think it's interesting. I'm intrigued by it. Maybe one day I'll get to that. Look, if that's the case, look, you, you gotta, you got to take the things that Jesus says here with, with a little bit of severity because Jesus is essentially saying there is no other way. I am God's rescue plan to you. And, um, and your, eternal, your eternal life, your eternal destination hinges on your relationship with me, what you're doing with me. For some of you, like, you, gotta, you need to stop waiting. You just need to make a decision. And maybe for you, for the very first time, you need to put a stake in the ground. Maybe God's working in your heart. You just need to put a stake in the ground and say, you know what? I believe it, man. I believe it. I'm, I'm, I'm done with the on-off thing. I'm done with the every once in a while I'm a Christian, every once in a while I'm not. I'm just going to commit. Because if this is what Jesus says about himself, I believe it's true, then I'm going to give my life to it. I'm scared to do it, but I'm going to do it. And if that's you, I would encourage you, why not today? Why not today? It's a great day. It's beautiful out, right? Be a fantastic day for the first time to give your life to Jesus. If you want to do that, you can actually just do that between your heart and God's heart. In a moment, we're going to, we're going to sing a little bit. Would you just pray to God? Just tell him, I believe this about you. There's not a magic prayer. You don't have to do anything crazy. You could just tell God between your heart and his heart, God, I accept this about you. Maybe for the first time you do that. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I just want you to wrestle with one question. And, and, uh, and I want you just to think about this passage. And as we worship and sing, maybe pray to God and ask him to help you with this. But let me just ask you this question. In your Christian life, has it become more? Has your Christian life become more about your work for Jesus than it's become about Jesus' work for you? Has God's grace stopped being amazing to you? And if that's the case, what I would encourage you to do is think about what Jesus said about himself is profoundly complete. Salvation from A to Z is found entirely outside of ourselves and squarely in the person of Jesus Christ. And maybe for you, you just need to confess to God. Say, God, man, move me again. Wreck me by your grace. Help me to think not about what I've done, but what about, about what you've done and be transformed by that. And you guys, for those of us who follow Jesus, we can rest. We can rest in the work of Jesus. It's complete. It's done. And so we can find rest in it. Let's pray together. And Jesus, I just want to say thank you for the, your word to us this morning. What you said about yourself is profound in so many ways. God, it's profoundly exclusive. And I know that the exclusivity of a statement like this rubs directly against the culture we live in. Father, there are many people who follow you that are ashamed of this, this truth. But God, if it's true, if it's true, then there is no other way. Jesus, I pray that, uh, that you would help us to embrace you that way. And God, I know that this statement is profoundly complete. It tells us that you've done everything, that really Christianity is all about your work for us, not our work for you. 
Christianity is not about how we ascend ourselves to God. It's about how God has descended himself to us, to save us, to rescue us, to pull us up out of our brokenness and our sin. Jesus, we need that. We need a savior. God, we don't need advice. We don't need, we don't need counseling. We don't need therapy. We probably need those things too. But more than that, we need saved. So Jesus, I pray that maybe for the first time, someone today would embrace you, not as a teacher, not as a counselor, not as a therapist, as a savior. Lord, you, you are God's rescue plan to us. So Father, I pray that you'd move in our hearts, help us to interact with you in a very real way today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.